Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I sat down with award-winning chef and restaurateur, Andrew Carmelini. Though born in Ohio, his Italian roots have pervaded much of his storied career, which includes New York City mainstays new and old, from La Conde Verde, The Dutch, and Bar Primi, to across the East River with Luca and West Light in the new William Vale Hotel. The James Beard and Michelin star honoree talks me through his foundational trips through Italy and France's respective wine countries, cooking for the Cuomos, the cities that entice him outside the Big Apple, and much, much more. Hi, I'm here with Andrew Carmelini. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Pretty good. Good, good. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up uh, in South Cleveland, a little a little uh, area right on the border called Seven Hills, Seven Hills, Ohio. And did you always know, you know, were there early inklings that you wanted to be a chef, that you loved cooking or any early influences early on? You know, there's a story my mom likes to tell that uh, she and her you know, 1970s parenting uh, uh, read that to distract and focus a very hyperactive child, which apparently I was, uh, uh, to give them um, a very inexpensive cure for that was to give them um, measuring cups and polenta and really? uh, or cornmeal and let them play with, you know, measuring things and kind of like using a you know, trying to get the measuring correct and dumping it out. And this whole, this whole activity was an idea to focus, uh, you know, a young, young kid's mind. And apparently I loved it. <laughs> she claims that's where it all started. Uh, but I always, you know, I just, I always loved, loved, you know, eating and, uh, you know, we had a garden uh, out back and my mom was, you know, working mom, but she was also a great, great cook. And um, I think um, so food was always kind of an important part of growing up for us. Nice. Was there a first meal that you remember cooking, maybe with her? Or? Uh, you know, I think both my both my grandmothers also were, um, you know, they loved to love to cook and bake, and I think um, that was always, you know, on, bo- on both sides of my family was kind of um, some, you know, some early memories, whether it was, you know, around the holidays or, um, you know. It's all these different, we had, you know, we had some, you know, traditions around the holidays, whether it was on, on the Italian side with making um, homemade sausages like mougette, which is a sausage from my uh, Furley, um background, like above Venice, it's fresh sausage. And they would make that around the holidays. And it's funny because the, the next weekend, the second week of December, the, uh, all the Polish people would get together and they would make kielbasa, homemade kielbasa. Um, so there was both these activities kind of like around sausage making. that was kind of like a, a big deal on both sides of the family. Nice. Did you have sauce on everything? I grew up in an Italian household and I just remember sauce on the table at all times. <laughs> oh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, a, you know, the Italian American experience is interesting, right? Cause like in my, in my neighborhood, all my friends that were Italian, they were either Sicilian or Calabrian or Campania. That was kind of their background. So sauce and, you know, those Italian-American, traditional Italian-American things were what you saw. My family from Ferruli, which like you can't get more north than that, really, <laughs> was we never had any of that growing up. And my my uh, my grandmother was, uh, you know, the derogatory, funny term for someone from Ferruli is um, a polentine, which means polenta eater or corn eater. And uh, so we would, it would be more like polenta and kind of like rich stews and almost, you know, uh, I bring up mougette, you know, it's interesting because um, that the condiment for that um, is something called bravda, which is like a fermented kind of like turnip. And you don't really think of those things as quote unquote Italian cuisine because that area was, you know, it was um, uh, raided and, and transferred between countries for years. It was part of Austria, it was part of Slovenia and, uh, it was kind of like this cross um, cultural kind of part of Italy. So our my Italian um, kind of like American food was very different than most of my friends. <laughs> That's funny how different it can be. And yeah. did you 
so you ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America. What brought you there? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, why did you gravitate towards that school? And what were some of the greatest takeaways from that experience? Well, it's interesting. You know, culinary school. It was, you know, then um, in in this is nineteen eighty nine. If you you know were serious about cooking, there was really there was wasn't a lot of paths to go, and it wasn't a very popular career, or it wasn't a, like a it wasn't a, something that you would tell someone you were going to do, and people would understand what that is really. You know, cooking uh, for most people. In the eighties, or like working in a restaurant was uh, was a it wasn't looked upon as a great career choice. It was um, uh, you know the kitchens were tough places that were um, full of destitutes and fringes of society, uh, even on a professional level. So you know, really, you, had, you could go to cookie school at a couple of different places, and you went to if you went to New York City, it was if you were serious and wanted to be you know kind of like a chef on a high level. Uh, you know, it was also not very expensive. It's very expensive now. Um, so it was it was more of a trade school, to be honest with you, um, than it is now. It is a very expanded curriculum, and uh, it was you know it was good for me because I was there. I, I was there when I was eighteen years old, uh, and it kind of introduced me to a wider, broader kind of section of cooking. Then um, now that professional cooking is like expanded so much in this country and. Um, which has been great, and it's you know portrayed in the media um, a lot, or I had its peak a couple of years ago, I would think. Um, you can the school part is not so necessary, I think. Uh, you know, I would say today, uh, not that it's a bad thing; it's a great thing um, for sure. But you can get great training because there's good good restaurants just about everywhere now, um, and you don't need to necessarily. Um, come to New York, Chicago, San Francisco to get great culinary training. So after school, and or maybe even during school, what was one of your first jobs, first roles, I guess, coming out of My school? My first job? Well, uh, you know, I had been cooking all through high school uh, and working in restaurants. Uh, but my first, <laughs> the coolest job, actually, I got during school. Um, and uh, it's kind of, a, kind of a wild story when I think about it. I just answered an ad that was literally posted up on the job bulletin at school and it was for a private, it's the private chef needed. And there was a number and this is pre-internet. Uh, so there was no kind of like looking it up and I just called the, called the number and I mailed in my resume and they called me up for, they called me up for an interview and I showed up at the address they gave me and it was the governor of New York's house. Uh, at the time that was Mario Cuomo and uh, it turns out I was their private chef uh, for two years, uh, which was a great job. It was a state job. Yeah. Um, and it was, um, it, it was great. Um, uh, it was a great, uh, you know, I did that three or four days a week. Uh, and uh, it was just kind of like a, a random thing I fell into. Do you remember any, like, are there any good like stories of great you know, <laughs> dinners that you No, kept? they were, they were great. Um, you know, really tr- a great, great family. And um, actually, um, Matilda Cuomo, um, the matriarch of that family, was instrumental in me, make, you know, getting me to come to, you know, to New, uh, to New York. And uh, she was really the, she really kind of, she actually introduced me to Tony May, um, who was big Italian restaurateur in the city, the best in the country at the time um, in the late 80s, uh, and uh, gave me my first job in the city. So it was, um, it was uh, it was an important important little step for me uh, way back then. And what you said you uh, cooked also through high school. Were you just at different local restaurants or anything? Oh yeah, I had uh, you know I, I I just wanted to you know I didn't necessarily know I wanted to have a career in restaurants. I just wanted to make money because it was a very easy you know it was a very easy formula for me. It was like you need to make some money to get a car to be able to go on dates with girls. So it was very very easy kind of you know, uh, lineage. So it was more just, you know, to make money and, uh, and, uh, you know, get out of the house. And, uh, I just, I liked, I liked the work and I always liked food when I was, you know, and like cooking with my family, uh, and then started working in kitchens. And, um, I, mean, I worked at some catering halls. I worked at a tiny restaurant and then I worked for my first like quote unquote real chef. And um, his name was John D'Amico, and he's got a French restaurant in Vermilion, Ohio, which is on Lake Erie. It's 
still there. Uh, him and his partner, Matt Mars, have this restaurant called Chez Francois. And they are old school restaurateurs still. And they run a great ship. I actually took my parents and I had a big party there for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, um, just kind of pre COVID. And they're still doing a great job, you know. And he was, uh, he was, uh, he was the, you know, he was a local chef that was, you know, flying lobsters in from Maine and he was using um, a, some great local farms and making all his own sauces. And at this time in the late 80s, it was a big deal that um, this was happening because there weren't a lot of restaurants that were doing those sorts of things, which is kind of hard to picture now. But, uh, you know, American gastronomy or kind of, you know, high end restaurants, there, were, there wasn't a lot of them. Um, and it wasn't really a, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, great dining at different levels didn't really kind of exist. And the American food movement was just starting out. Um, there wasn't a lot of media covering food, um, on a high level. It was basically gourmet magazine and, and cooks, um, cooks magazine. And there were a couple shows on TV, uh, mostly on, on uh, public TV. Um, no, no reality TV cooking shows, no food networks, nothing like that. So it was special that he was doing that. And he was, um, you know, a big influence on me. That's awesome. And so, okay. So going back to Cuomo, got this great job. What's next? Where do you go from there? Well, I came to, I came to New York, um, you know, right, right when I, right when I graduated, um, I worked at a, um, you know, I, at, and at this point I knew I wanted to be, cause I wasn't really sure. Like there was all these, I wasn't sure if I wanted to own a restaurant or be a manager or, or you know, I, there was this whole wine thing that I, you know, don't really, didn't really understand what that was or what a sommelier was. And, uh, you know, it was, it was time to go to New York and, and cook because that's what I, at that point, decided I really kind of wanted to want to do that. And New York was the place to go. And uh, I got, uh, I worked at all the top restaurants for like a couple of days each just to see what was going on. And back then, you know, back then, all the top restaurants, there was like 10 really and most of them were french except for one which um was italian and they had three stars from the new york times and they had an italian chef uh that had a two-star Michelin restaurant in italy um, who was working here also and it was called san domenico and it was um on the corner of central park south uh, between um broadway and seventh and it was the Italian restaurant in the country at that time. Um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, kind of Red Sox classics or kind of like elevated Italian American cuisine. It was, um, what the Italians were called Alto Cucina, kind of like high kitchen. So very, um, Emilia Romagna, Milanese, like, um, lots of, lots of French technique, but Italian flavors and, um, the great, great eye opener. I was the only, um, I was the only American on the team. Oh, that's not true. Actually, we were two Americans on the team. Otherwise, it was all Italian. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Um, great, great intro to, um, you know, to a professional kitchen in, in New York doing food on a high level. Um, and, uh, yeah, I did that for um, a couple of years and then went to Italy. Ah, what'd you do in Italy? Italy, I, you know, I did the same. I had the connection at San Domenico. There's a San Domenico. Uh, the original location was in uh, Emilia Romagna, and uh, I went and trained there. And I worked at Volturo Marchese in Milan, and I worked at a couple of small trattorias, and then just traveled really. And uh, I did the same thing in France much later. It's just that I, you know, restaurants are one kind of aspect of food, and I was always interested. Yeah, even what the great chefs were doing and the great restaurants, but also what um, the roots of everything were and kind of what the grandmothers were cooking and what people were eating at home and where things came from. So I learned this, you know, in Italy and some trips previously I'd taken with my family that it's the, the ingredient part of Italian cuisine is so, so important, which sounds cliche when you say that, but it really, really is, you know, the you know, kind of understanding the history and the topography of different areas and, you know, why, you know, why wine is grown in this area and how it's grown and what makes Nebbiolo different from San Giovese and how, like, the different the different houses and Parmigiano-Reggiano versus Grana and kind of just experiencing all of that and understanding what it all means. Um, I think it's really, really 
kind of important. Um, I've always been a fan of um, understanding where things come from and understanding kind of the roots of stuff. And um, so that was a year of cooking in restaurants and and um, traveling to these areas and learning as much as I could about the history of things and why, what is balsamic vinegar, <laughs> yeah, why, wh- how it's made, where it's made, who are the people to do it and understand, uh, you know, how it's used. So after that, I feel then you have a respect for it and you can either do something very traditional or you can take it and do something else with it that's your own, but at least you understand where, where it comes from. No, that's so important. Were there any, I mean, great eye openers while you were there? Total, I spent about two and a half years in Europe between France and uh, France and Italy. And I, you know, the, 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 the biggest eye opener is, is, you know, when you grow up in the States, um, you, it's only, we're only 200 and whatever years old, really. And so we don't have that, that those layers of like history and assumption of history, which can be a burden. But when it comes to food, it's a, it's, it's a, um, the traditions there just are, I, I love it and, and, and still love it. Whether it's, you know, going to, um, you know, simple things like you grow up with blue cheese and you, it's like, oh, blue cheese, whatever. Or, you know, Roquefort, whatever, but going to Roquefort, you're busy in the caves and kind of, you know, understanding how, how it's made and why it's made. And similarly, like going to, you know, Lombardia and visiting areas where they make Gorgonzola and understanding the difference between Gorgonzola Dolce and Gorgonzola Picante. And I think to like make your, to be a great, great chef and like have a real understanding of food. Whatever kind of food you're doing with Japanese or Chinese or Italian or all of the above, kind of like understanding that tradition um, gives you authority then to like screw around with it later. Right. Put your own spin on it. Yeah. So what brought you back to New York? Uh, well, um, I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> Love the honesty. Uh, Love yeah, that's, that's it's really, really what it boiled down to. Is, and, you know, the idea was to come back to, you know, come back to New York and, and, and work in a great place and get great training and then um, save a, enough money to go back. Um, but I came back, back to New York and uh, got a job at um, another great restaurant um, and, uh, Probably one of the better, best restaurants of, of its time, for sure. And it was a restaurant called Lespinas, uh, which was, uh, uh, we got four stars um, at that restaurant um, when I was on the crew there. Uh, it was in the St. Regis Hotel on Fifth Avenue and 55th Street. Um, it was the kind of like platonic ideal of a of grand cuisine, um, you know, and I'd been cooking Italian for, you know, three years now, uh, both in Italy and in New York. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted some discipline. I wanted to expand. Um, I love Italian food and Italian cooking, but the Italians are unorganized. <laughs> and, uh, they are, uh, you know, just kind of, it's a, it's a different kind of discipline. And I, I, I'd seen, you know, seen some French kitchens when I was working around for free in New York just to see what was going on. And I wanted to experience that. Um, and uh, the restaurant was a French restaurant with a Swiss chef that cooked a lot of Southeast Asian ingredients um, and was very revolutionary in a way because he brought a lot of kind of um, these flavors from India and Singapore and Thailand and Vietnam um, into fine dining, which at the time, I mean, the French had been doing that since the seventies for sure. It's like all the French chefs in the early seventies ran to Japan, uh, and were, you know, had restaurants in Japan and were bringing some of that stuff back. Um, but you would see the, how that would, that would come on the plate in, 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 in France and in London would be sauteed foie gras with lychees and ginger where, um, and that was basically, you know, taking like a French dish and then putting a couple, you know, Asian ingredients on it and calling it fusion. Gray's, uh, Gray Coons was the chef, um, who recently passed away, uh, who was, I think, revolutionary in that way is that really took a deep dive into, um, you know, he lived in Singapore for most of his life, even though he was from Switzerland and cooked in Singapore. So he had this, Singapore's, you know, there's a lot of, um, cross cultural, 
Asian communities in Singapore and the food kind of reflects that. Um, similar to New Orleans, if you will, um, you know, and the history there. And he brought that into that food. So it wasn't just like taking a French dish and plopping, you know, some ginger on it and calling it fusion. It was really, um, you know, bringing um, techniques from India and techniques from Thai sauce making and, uh, um, and, and putting it in this fine dining um, environment. And the food didn't pull any punches. I mean, it was, it was, it was spicy. It was pickled. It was, it was uh, salty and smoky. It was sour and sweet. It was, um, and it was very jarring uh, for, you know, for some, someone not, not used to that, especially in the fine dining. And it was, um, it was exciting. Um, and we got four stars from the, from the times and it was um, considered one of the, Best restaurants in the country for sure. It was an exciting time to be around, and I worked there for four years. I did, I did everything there. Um, I worked all the stations in the kitchen, um, and wanted to, um, you know, wanted to. It just it opened my 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 world kind of like beyond a Eurocentric, you know, uh, cooking, and um, it was great, great training ground. Through trying all the different stations and you know different areas of a kitchen. Did you start to figure out what you liked best? You know, I, I had more or less decided I was dedicating myself to the cooking part um, and to the to the chef part. Uh, you know, in in Europe, um, I mean, I was you know I'm spoiled the sense that I really got a chance to you know visit with a lot of the great winemakers, and I I mean I did um, I went to I went to every chateau you can imagine in France and and, and with Burgundy and. And, and, and Sauterne and Bordeaux and, and, and Barolo and, and, and uh, traveled all these different regions, spent a lot of time like learning about that. And I love, I love wine and have a lot of respect for it, but I was really the cooking thing that really, really focused me. Um, the, the flavor part of that was very intoxicating to me. And so after four years there, is that when you went on to Le Cirque or what was kind of the steps before there? I saved up enough money to go back to Europe. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, and, uh, I just love besides the, you know, the cook, the cooking part is the, the cultural part of it was really, really great for me and, and I think an important experience and I love being there. And, um, so I, I really wanted to go to France and, um, I went, was in France for a year with a three month stop in London and, um, yeah, just, just cooking. I worked at our page in Paris for six months. Uh, and did some part-time work at a boulangerie there in Paris, uh, and then went down to the south of France, uh, to Nice, and I worked in a small bistro there called, um, that's not there anymore, called Les Bacurian. And, uh, after that, uh, I was getting kind of tired of that. Um, we're not working for hardly any money, and, um, my kind of learning curve had stopped, and so I leased a car for three months and I, I was a very specific kind of idea. I took, I, I got a Michelin map of, of, of France and I basically plotted out an idea that I was going to go to every department and the departments are the little like um, almost states, if you will, inside France and uh, little regions. And I was going to visit every department south of Paris and I was never going to go on the, the highway ever and there was there, there was no and there was no real plan except um i was just going to go and so i left nice and went you know uh due due, due north and um just kind of kept on crisscrossing every everywhere south of france burgundy and and the uh the jura and, and o savoy and um all through the rhone uh rhone valley and um, Burgundy and even uh, my, my favorite areas were the areas that were less traveled. You know, uh, the, the, the plan was simple. It was just to visit experience and, you know, keep it food centric. So I would be on these very small roads, um, the countryside of France. And if I saw something cool, I would stop and just talk to people. So I did all kinds of really great stuff. I made, I made goat cheese and, and I made goat cheese. I made, um, uh, uh, Cantal cheese. I helped shape Cantal cheese. I you know I did the harvest in Cahors. I I visited um, all different kind of purveyors in Armagnac. I made foie gras 
which is a you know now a controversial ingredient. But I I stuffed geese. I um, you know stopped at the guy that made duck confit. I did like any, anything and everything. Um, I visited mills where they made you know special oils. I did. And that was really, again, all pre-internet. So I basically see a sign in the road and just stop and just start to talk to people. And it was amazing because, you know, in these areas, they, you know, most people were just excited that someone cared about what they were doing uh, and that they spoke French. And they were even more amazed that this like young American kid wanted to know, he wanted to stuff, you know, geese with them or he wanted to, you know, be able to, you know, shape Cantal, even knew what Cantal cheese was. And uh, it was really... It was really a magical, magical trip and kind of, again, shaped my idea of, of, um, of, of food and just kept on learning. Sounds like it. I mean, how do you think it ultimately shaped it? Just, again, that history and understanding or, you know, just the process or all of it? I think now I, I just, I'm always looking, I'm always looking for the platonic ideal of like things. So, you know, even if we're doing a, a, like a very simple dish, we're just trying to make a great version of it, um, whether it's traditional or focused on a super ingredient. And I've become, I mean, again, this could change. It's now in Phil Laley, kind of like trying to make just great versions of, you know, things. So if we are making like a papadeli ragu, it's, it's really, it's bringing all these things together and just making the best version that we can. And whether it's this, you know, simple thing like you mentioned, the like sauce, uh, you know, is it, um, is it like a fresh, quick tomato sauce and something that's like super, super bright and you taste summertime? But whatever we're doing, just trying to make the platonic ideal of, you know, what that is and um, bring smiles to people's faces. Amazing. And so this uh, this trip of a lifetime <laughs> ended after three months. And then, and then what? You know, what was next for you? What did you want to do? I got back to New York uh, again because I ran out of money. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I was good. Actually, I wanted to work with Jean, Jean George at the time. Um, this is before he opened up his restaurant on Central Park South. Um, I was supposed to work, um, was supposed to work at Jean George. Uh, he gave me a job to be the head saucier there, saucier there. And, uh, there were some delays at construction and I was, I was out of money. <laughs> I was out of money. And, uh, I went to the Union Square market. Uh, on a Wednesday because I wasn't working and I was just back kind of trying to get into it. And I ran into uh, Marco Maccioni with the chef from the Cirque. Um, I was with uh, a woman that knew me and they were, she was like, Oh, Andrew, you know, introduced me to them. The, you know, the, one of the sons, the owner of Le Cirque and uh, the chef, uh, actually the sec- at time is the sous chef, uh, chef de cuisine of uh, Le Cirque named Sota, Sota Kuhn. So, Cambodian man that worked in France for a long time and it was Daniel Blue's uh, chef. Uh, and they said, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm doing nothing right now. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of on the spot, they hired me, uh, to be, uh, to be a sous chef at Le Cirque. Uh, and they were looking for an American, uh, with, with a lot of European experience. And I think my Italian last name and the fact that I spoke, um, pretty good uh, French was a I didn't even try any fit there wasn't even no cooking tryouts so I could communicate with everybody and uh, you know I had some you know background working in a good restaurant so they hired me right there in the middle of the the, the farmer's market uh, to be a sous chef at Le Cirque and uh, they they were about to I think part of the reason uh, they, you know, they were kind of eager to hi- hire me is they were about to uh, embark on this thing called the Le Cirque World Tour. And, and mind you, this is this is not at the peak Le Cirque time, which I would say is like the late 80s, early 90s when Danielle was the chef there and it was on 65th Street and it was the basically the center of high society in New York and and, and high gastronomy. Um, but they, they, they were about to launch on the Le Cirque World Tour, which is just... <laughs> When I when I think back on it, it's just it's unbelievable um, that that this even happened like this. But it was basically uh, it was basically a two month tour on the road. It took the restaurant on the road, and we did pop up dinners all over the world. So cool! Uh, and uh, yeah, they they hired they hired me to do that uh, with them. Uh, you know, with the chef and the chef at the time, Jacques Therese, and uh, we 
London, Paris, Montecanini, um, all through Europe, um, Vienna, and uh, we did one in Hong Kong, and uh, yeah, it was. It was it was it was a it was it was like basically being at a in a in a rock show or like a worldwide you know tour music tour but with a restaurant uh, and you, you kind of like wake up and you're like okay we're in Zurich let's go <laughs> the show <laughs> the show the show's tomorrow night at eight and uh, it was it was great I mean who could ask for a better job than that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of an interesting, interesting experience. A little, not, not, not typical, I would say. And so I did that for, I did that for a couple of years. So I came back, worked to the restaurant, got, um, and, uh, we got four stars again there. Um, and, uh, that's where, uh, basically I got recruited by Daniel Ballou, um, <clears throat> who would come to eat there on Sunday sometimes. And I would, I would cook for him. Uh, and he was looking for uh, a young American chef to take over Restaurant Danielle on 76th Street uh, at that time. And this is 1998 at this point. And he was going to move um, his restaurant, Danielle, which was a flagship restaurant on 76th Street between 5th and Madison. And he was going to move it to the old Le Cirque. The old Le Cirque had moved. And it was kind of big news because he was the old chef of Le Cirque and he was going to move his flagship restaurant to 65th street, um, causing there was a lot of drama around it and, uh, speculation. And the restaurant on 76th street was going to turn into a restaurant called cafe blue, which was named after his grandparents restaurant, um, outside of Lyon, France. And he wanted an American chef to run it. And, uh, he hired me and, uh, I was there for seven years, uh, as the chef my first chef job. Um, I took that job when I was 29 years old, which was, um, I'd be cooking already, you know, professionally quote unquote for 10 years already. And, uh, you know, I was ready for it and it was great. Um, really, really great, great time, great time to be cooking, great time to be cooking in America. I had a lot of freedom there. Danielle was wonderful. Um, he also wasn't around too much because he was mostly working at restaurant Danielle, so he didn't bother me too much. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, um, yeah, it was great, really great experience. And uh, he, we, we got along. Uh, I had like zero complaints from that time. Um, yeah. What did you, you learn know, from him? Any kind of, uh, you know, the he, he I, I, I uh, it's interesting because I never worked for him before, and he hired me from the outside to be the chef there, which was. Uh, not a popular choice with some of his current team, um, especially <clears throat> since I was American. So there was a lot to prove there. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a ch- it was a challenge. It was hard. Um, but learning, you know, learning from Danielle was, um, I would say the, the overall kind of scope of the business, um, was maybe what I would learn the best from Danielle. And, uh, he, whether it's kind of greeting, you know, his, you know, customers in the front, and the way he interacted with staff, um, and uh, which is especially back then very intense, uh, and uh, you know, his passion for cooking, but is all is also a way he kind of dealt with the business, and uh, it was a it was a great eye opener to be understand how to you know uh, run a professional kitchen, but also run a couple of different restaurants. Cause at that time he was going through the process of going from one restaurant to two restaurants and then three restaurants. And there was a lot for me to like learn there and, you know, observe. And he's really kind of a consummate professional, you know, chef and in the in-house chef, 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 if you will. And that was, you know, really important to me. And I kind of adopted that style. Um, but understanding how to run the business as a whole, whether it was, you know, dealing with like food costs or dealing with, you know, how to put the menu together, dealing with, you know, how to talk to your sommelier and how to talk to your pastry chef and all that stuff together was just a big absorption time for me to understand that best I could. Yeah, for sure. Especially now looking at your amazing portfolio. So was, did you go to a voce from here? Was that your next step? Yeah, that was, you know, that was interesting, you know, that I was trying to like, and, and at that point, you know, I was doing that for, you know, quite a long time. I think that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good run to be, um, you know, a chef for someone. Um, 
you know, seven years. Uh, and you won a James and, Beard or two, right? Yeah, I won a couple of James Beard at Kevin Blue. I was a James Beard, um, Bryzy Star Chef. And, uh, you know, just before I left, um, I was Best, best Chef New York, uh, which was, I mean, an amazing, amazing thing to get. Um, and, but I wanted to, you know, like, I wanted to go do my own thing. Um, I kind of reached my plateau, if you will, um, working for Danielle. It's actually interesting because I wanted to, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to actually continue working for him, but I think, um, I think, uh, there wasn't anything for me to do in the company anymore. And, uh, and I never really wanted to like get out there and put my name out there, or do cookbooks and promote myself because that really wasn't, it's not, it's, it's not what I like to do. I don't actually don't even like to talk about myself too much or promote myself. It's not really, it's not in my DNA. And, uh, you know, from most, I think to be out there in the world and running a restaurant, you need to do that because you need people to come to it, uh, besides just like make, you know, good ravioli. Um, so I, I went out and, uh, I, I was trying to start my own restaurant, um, which is hard, you know, it's hard if you're, you know, if you don't come from a place of means, and you don't come from a, um, you know, a background that, that has, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurial kind of spirit of the finances to do that. It's hard for, you know, to, you know, to make that, to make that step, how to find money, how to talk to lawyers, how to negotiate a lease, to understand all these principles that aren't just cutting the fish. And I really thought it was like important for me to understand that. So I could run the business part of it as, best that I could. And, um, I was trying to do that and I was just about to execute that kind of vision and to, um, sign a, a small, a small little lease on uh, 10th street. Uh, when this uh, group out of London recruited me to do a restaurant called, um, that ended up being called, um, a voce, which is kind of an Italian small thing, meaning word of mouth. And, um, yeah, that was good. It was a good experience. It was the, you know, two years, I got a Michelin star there. I got three stars from the New York Times. Uh, and it was, um, you know, fa- fairly celebrated modern Italian restaurant. Um, but I had some business problems there. It was a good, the whole thing was a good lesson business-wise because it taught me uh, the value of partnerships and the value, you know, and to, you know, do due diligence when you're doing business with people. And um, so we, we broke up about two years later. All those business things that you never think about until yeah, yeah, <laughs> you need it, to. It, it, it's a it's a blue collar job, like being a chef and and, and 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 working in restaurants for sure. It's not a white it's not a white collar job, and usually now it's a little bit different because it's different socio demographics kind of getting into restaurants and cooking. But the you don't um, to make those leaps like it's uh, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of um, learning learning on the job and a lot of um a lot you know a lot of a lot of mistakes can be made unless you have, don't have someone behind you and mentoring you through that process um but i don't i don't regret um you know any of those things it was just a uh, part of the learning process um to get there right sometimes you need those hard lessons learned better than school what, you know i love how you just threw out you got your first michelin star you got all these amazing awards <laughs> Um, so you're doing something right. So where did you go or how did you start to then establish NoHo Hospitality, which, you know, now is an amazing collection of restaurants, you know, across the country, um, and many in New York, but you know, how did you make that step? The step was a, was a sloppy bunch of steps for sure. (laughs) And, you know, there was no intention to open up like just like a restaurant group. And I, um, kind of like after my, successes and then brutal failures kind of like at, uh, at Boche, uh, I was decided I was going to go into business for myself and I was going to do it on my own and um, whatever that was. And it took about a year for me to figure that out of not working full time and every day waking up and trying to put all these things together, the money, the location, the, the, the concepts, the, you know, the legal part of it, uh, you know, trying to do it as best as I could. Right. And, uh, I got very lucky because, uh, all that happened in the middle of the financial crisis. <laughs> uh, it's amazing because when I decided I was going to do business myself and basically started to put the word in the street that I was going to do something looking around for spaces, I got bombarded with work. Um, I went from 
in my second bedroom of my apartment in my shorts at my computer <laughs> trying to figure all this out to, um, you know, having a good chunk of money in the bank to, you know, about to, about to sign, you know, about to sign a lease. Uh, I was, um, you know, nego- negotiating with a um, brand new casino in Las Vegas to do something three years away. I was uh, uh, also negotiating with uh, Jay-Z, who was opening a hotel at that time in Chelsea, was going to do a restaurant inside the Chelsea, uh, in, in Chelsea in this hotel that was like two years away. And it was all just happening very, very quickly. Uh, and then October, um, October happened of 2007, 2008, whatever that was. And uh, it was financial crisis and that all went away. Um, it basically was, you know, on, on, on Monday, on Monday of that week, we were had more work over the next three years than we could, that I could handle. And, uh, uh, by Friday that week, it was all gone. Oh, wow. Head funds were pulling out of the casino and the, 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 the Jay-Z hotel thing, the same thing, kind of like that project was being stalled. It's similar to kind of like what we're going through now. Just everything just stopped. And it was dim times there for a couple of months on trying to figure out kind of what to do. Um, and then, uh, you know, Robert De Niro was a customer of ours when I was uptown at Cafe Blue, and he had opened up um, a hotel in uh, Tribeca called the Grand Hotel about nine months previously, and he had a restaurant there that did famously bad, uh, which was an odd misstep for him in this kind of hospitality investing. And uh, his, you know, his people and the people that um, were running the hotel approached me and said, "Listen, we have this restaurant. We built it." Um, the people that we hired um, aren't going to work out. You know, can you do something with it? Uh, and at that time, it was kind of scary. It was December of 2008, and uh, you know, it was, New York was not a pretty place for restaurants at the time because of the crisis. Uh, and I remember sitting at the bar at this, re- you know, in the bar in this restaurant. Um, that there was like four people sitting and having dinner inside it, um, and. But it was like, you know, we, it's a beautiful hotel and I, you know, knew, know Tribeca very well. And that's how La Conda Verde came to be. And that was 12 years ago. Um, and it, 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 uh, it happened all very quickly. Actually, we, my first meeting with everybody and two weeks later, we had a signed, signed deal and, uh, it was, we did a light renovation there. Uh, we only closed for 10 days. We did a little bit of cosmetic stuff in the front. I put a brand new pasta cooker in the back and that was it. We were, we were, we opened and look at Verde has been a tremendous success ever since um, 12 years, um, even with outside dining uh, and everything where it's busier than ever. Um, and it has and one of the just, best um, private event room or private dining rooms. I do. Oh yeah. No, thank you. I do an event thank there you. every year. <laughs> well, I used, not no. this year, next year. Um, okay. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, and so you had the Conde Verde and then you slowly just kind of. Well, we had 15 restaurants uh, in, in, in hotels and in the port, you know, my, my group, um, you know, just stopped until COVID. Uh, and it was no intention to, to do that. It just kind of, you know, different opportunities came about. And, uh, you know, I loved, uh, there was a kind of iconic corner in Soho in the corner of Princess Sullivan where the car room was. And, you know, it, uh, it closed, uh, during the financial crisis. And I was always obsessed with the corner because it just felt, it just felt like Sesame Street to me. And it just had a great New York feel. And I wanted to open up and I've been cooking, you know, Italian and French and, uh, you know, European food my whole career. I wanted to open up a, a great American restaurant and help define what that was. And so we opened up the Dutch there and, 2011 and that was new york times restaurant of the year um which was a huge deal for us uh and you know, a year later the same thing happened at uh you know the old time cafe in the corner of uh of uh, great jones and lafayette and it just had this like great big sweeping ceilings and uh it just seemed like it should be a french grand cafe and, uh we opened up lafayette there and it just so they just you know, it's interesting. It's like some, some days I wish that we just, I just had one place, you know, and, uh, you can, uh, just concentrate on that a hundred percent and, uh, you know, live and breathe it every day. 
I mean, you have multiple stores. Uh, it's 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 amazing to have people that have worked with us for a long time and able to grow into like these positions uh, and, you know, people that have been with me that have, you know, they literally started as food, as a food runner in a restaurant, um, not speaking very much English. And now they're general managers working at a very high level, you know, running a $20 million business um, at a, at a hotel for us. Or, you know, uh, um, I love that part about, you know, this business is that, you know, with the, with, you know, hard work and just kind of dedication to the craft of it. Um, and the consistent, you know, part of that, you can, you know, have a great, great career and a great job and, and, you know, be a restaurant owner one day or, or if you don't want to necessarily be in the business of restaurants, translate that to some other, um, aspect in food and, and to have a, you know, I have a team like that. Um, you know, pre COVID we had about 2000 employees. Um, it's, um, I know it's great, and that kind of like being part, being able to like mentor people, and that part of that growth has been very satisfying. Well, and the community that I love about you know the restaurant world, I feel like there you know it's almost like a big family um, when you get people you know when you when you have companies like yourself and what you guys do, and even just from chef to chef across the board. Um, and I mean, it's just amazing the fact that you all these restaurants, right? You mentioned the you know the Dutch and Lafayette and. Um, Bar Premi, they've all become staples across the city and, you know, have weathered the, the storm that is New York sometimes. And then you started to expand a bit to Brooklyn, the William Vale, um, uh-huh. San Diego and Baltimore with Pendry um, and the Shinola Hotel in Detroit. Uh-huh. When did you decide to expand your reach past New York? When was it? You know, once you have a couple spots and people start to be interested in and Vegas starts coming calling and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, it's just kind of the natural evolution of things. And I, I think, uh, it's interesting because it, you know, it's it, like Baltimore and Detroit, uh, Detroit, especially when you mention it to, you know, New Yorkers say, Oh, I went to Detroit to open the restaurant. They're like, what? They <laughs> think you're absolutely crazy. Uh, and, but I look at it. From a couple different, you know, a couple different angles. So, like, why didn't you go to Hong Kong? Why didn't you go to, you know, Vegas? Or why, you know? And everybody's in Vegas. Every chef, every restaurateur, every brand is is, is in Vegas. And Detroit, um, I love that it's a it. There's a it's a real place, and there's real community there. Um, it had um, a very kind of small DIY chef kind of community there that were doing great things um, already. And there was, um, there was room there for, um, for us to come. We had a great local partner that's uh, ingrained in the community there already. Actually two great local partners, a fashion brand. And then, uh, you know, Dan Gilbert, who's um, important, important part of the kind of like rejuvenation downtown. And uh, it's been great. Um, uh, and for, you know, New York's, it's, it's hard. New York's hard. We all know that, right? It's, uh, it's financially hard. It's, um, you know, there's the physicality of it is, you know, it's hard sometimes. So for, you know, some of our people on the team in, in New York, when we decided to do something in Detroit, um, it was an easy sell. And we have about eight people now, um, that moved to Detroit from New York. Um, half of them bought houses started families and they you know they they can they're making the same money they made in new york but they're doing you know they're living in detroit for much less money and uh there's a great there's a great music scene there there's a great arts community there um and it's um yeah it's, it's cool it's really really cool and the restaurants the restaurant is, is thriving um again covid goes without saying but but until that was thriving very well and, you know, speaking of COVID, I mean, how has it been for you the last seven months or eight months, whatever month we're on now? Uh, you know, it's, it's been a nightmare. That's what it, basically what it, what it boils down to. I, mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, restaurants, um, you know, music, um, live entertainment, you know, been hit, hit very hard in this. Uh, and uh, it's been, a, it's been a, a super, super challenge on, on many levels besides the business level just emotional level and uh you know we furloughed uh 98% of our company uh which was uh just on a again an emotional level very traumatic cuz very kind of close to the team and have a and it's hard just you know to 
to um, to you know lay lay people off at families and, and rely rely on us and but there's nothing to do. There's no there's no playbook for this. You know, closing a restaurant is is one thing, but having to close everything is. I mean, we closed 15 properties in a matter of seven days. Um, so, besides the the, the the figuring out actually how to do that, um, but also um, you know doing that in a way where you can't you can't really take care of everybody because the music just stopped. Um, but we're here still, and you know we're open open for outside dining, and uh, uh, and we're doing 25% indoor, and uh, like everyone else, we're worried about the winter. But I believe that next year, um, you know, with um, expanded outdoor dining and um, I think just pent up, pent up demand for, um, I don't think everything's going to turn to normal in the springtime by any stretch of the means, but I feel that um, it's going to, it'll just feel better and there'll be a sense on how to deal better um, by next spring. Yeah. No, let's hope uh, for sure. Um, and we always end this podcast on uh, the title of the podcast. So what I've learned. So through your amazing career, which I feel like we could talk for another two hours, but we're going to watch time. Um, what has been your greatest lesson learned along the way? I think, you know, learning how to adapt, um, you know, on the fly and not get too emotional about it. Now I say not get too emotional about it, even though, anyone that's passionate about what they do still does, but, yeah. uh, you know, being, just be able to like, you know, pivot when needed, whether it's a small thing, like a special customer request, uh, or dealing with, um, you know, uh, kind of, you know, any small little thing that happens in a restaurant to kind of like a large thing like COVID is, uh, you know, just being able to like take a, take, take a, take a, take a breath and, um, and try to make to make a good decision. Um, that and if you make a mistake, not let too many people know that you made a mistake. <laughs> That's the art of it. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Well, it's a really good lesson learned for everyone to remember. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your schedule for this. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.